Scotland before, and it's who's, very uh, difficult to understand what they're who's saying. Who's Adam Nathan's buddy? Stewart. Uh, buddy, uh, Stuart. Oh, you know who I'm talking Stu. about? He Stuart has an accent. amazing accent. No, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's, a, uh, he's an English guy, but he's got he's a, a mouth Coven, full guy. of golf balls. <laughs> like, literally, stick your hand <laughs> in your mouth. Put your fist in your mouth. Open your mouth and then talk. I can't. That's what he sounds like. Oh. What the hell? That's like the, I told you. I got off the plane at Heathrow like ten years ago. At I could not understand anything the guy was saying. This guy's accent is so thick. Even Adam's confused by the guy. And he Welcome to the pedestrian podcast. Myself with a mouthful of golf balls, Stuart Court and Mr. Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? I'm very good. I'm look as you say, Stu, with your uh, your accent. I am always nervous with our <laughs> American guests that we might need a translator or some subtitles or one of those guys in the corner doing the the little you know sign language or something just to help the guy out. So hopefully, when you introduce our guest, he'll actually know that you're speaking to him uh, <laughs> because yeah, otherwise it could just be blank faces for the next hour or whatever. Well, well, we get we'll get onto it. We've had some practice this week listening to the the British accent as well. Joining us this week, first time on the Bed Pod. Uh, one of the hosts on Seattle Sports on Bump and Stacey show. Welcome to the Pet Pop, Michael Bumpers. How are we? I'm good, man. Thanks for for having me. And you're right. We spoke to uh, Adam Dirty. Dirty. Everyone here wants to say Dirty. Uh, <laughs> Adam Dirty. And uh, yeah, I've been uh, I've been practicing a little bit, so I think we should be good. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't. I don't think I real, don't think I knew until listen to that interview you had with. Uh, AD yesterday that you you played a little soccer and you spent some time on these shores as well. Yeah, when I was uh, soccer was my first sport actually. My mom didn't let me play football until high school, so <laughs> um, I played soccer. We went over um, to England on a tour. We played like four or five clubs over there. Went to stayed in Eastbourne, but uh, traveled around uh, the, the island of Biddle. It was good times, man. Nice. Michael, th- this bit could fail spectacularly, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hope that your memory lasts more than a few hours and see if it does or doesn't. So <laughs> we have a little uh, trivia game that we try and do for each of our guests when they come on the show, and we have one one question that we ask everyone just to make you know, we're a serious show, right? We're not messing around. <laughs> we want to make sure right. we've got a level of expertise that you know we can we can put you out to our audience. And my question is: Russell Wilson was controversially benched in favor of which quarterback? Uh, Stidham, I learned my lesson today. I, was, I, I did a bit of research. I did so I, I, Stacey's been on with us a few times. I said, look, we've got bump on. Is there anything that you can uh, that I can zing him with? And apparently you lost the trivia game today. Yeah, well, you know, I usually lose against Curtis. This trivia knowledge is, is ridiculous. But um, <laughs> the last, like, four or five, I've lost on questions that I know, but my brain just wasn't fired. And, yeah. That was it, man. It, it was Stidham. So yeah, uh, fool me once. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I get to go now. Uh, so. uh, how how is hosting the show? It's a couple of years in working with Stacey, and obviously, as Adam said, we've had Stacey on a few times. It, it must be quite fun working with her. Well, four hours is a long time, I know, but energy yeah, is high. Um, yeah, it's been great, man. Stacey's awesome. Um, obviously, she's been in that in that role on that show for about four or five years now. This is my second year with her. Um, no, we got good chemistry. The first few months we're trying to fill each other out, but uh, now, man, I think we got a good thing going. But no, I, I'm so lucky to work with Stacey, man. I, I've worked with a lot of people, um, in this industry, and uh, she's by far the easiest to work with. Yeah. My inside source, who's the same person that fed me the question, says that you won't bring your puppy into the studio. 
and he slash she is very <laughs> upset by this. What's going on with that? Yeah, so I got a, I have a mini doodle now, a little brown mini doodle, and she wants me to bring the pup in, but I live like 45 minutes to an hour away from the station. So I go, look, if my wife just happens to be around, I'll bring her in. But And also, the pups are like your kids, right? You want to make sure they're well-behaved and trained before you can bring them around, people. So she's uh, her name is Callie. Um, I'm from California, so we named it Callie. And uh, she probably has like another month before I could start taking her places. Yeah, I've got a 75-pound golden doodle uh, who's two and a bit now, and there's no way as a puppy I'm taking him anywhere where my, my reputation could be ruined because he would have absolutely right. destroyed it in uh, in one fell swoop. So I, I can sympathize with you on that one. For sure, for uh, sure. As so, so as as we mentioned, you do a four-hour radio show every day during the week. Obviously, something like the last month in Seahawks World must give it like this must be quite refreshing because you got you got new people to talk to, you got new point of views to hear from, you got yeah new new uh new catchphrases. Was it uh, was it chasing the edges and all that from my Madonna and everything? That that must be something at the start of a long off season that is refreshing that you got a lot of bases, a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, you know, in our business, you know, reactive. We just react to anything that's going down. And typically after the Super Bowl, it slows down. And for 14 years, you've had essentially the same coaching staff there, at least when it comes to Pete Carroll being the head coach. Oh, so yeah, it gives us a lot to talk about, a lot of anticipation going on. It's cool to finally see it all come together, though. You know, everyone's new. Uh, we've, we've interviewed Mike McDonald. Uh, obviously, we just had AD. Um, as well. So it, it's getting to know these guys. Ryan Grubb is a, is a name that we know, but not personally. We don't know him yet. So hopefully we're going to interview him next week. But yeah, it gives us a lot to talk about. You're right. Four hours in a day and <laughs> things can become repetitive at times. So we're always thankful for, for some breaking news. What, what, what's been your first impressions on McDonald and AD? But we'll, we'll go, we'll go the head, the head guy first. What's your, what's been your first impressions talking to him and, listening to him when he's had the opportunity to speak. Yeah. Um, first impression is, man, he's young. I'm 38. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, to be young and to be a leader of a multi-billion dollar organization, you have to be sharp and on point. And that's exactly what I felt, man. Um, you don't, you can't sneak into this league and get the position that he's in. You have to be um, a smart guy. Got to be good with relationships. Um, and you got to have a philosophy that people believe in. And uh, after listening to him speak in the presser and then right after that, coming over to us and talking to him there, uh, I believe in it, man. You know, I believe in what he's doing. Um, I'm excited for him. I know it's going to be a challenge. And uh, the next step was just wait to see who, we, who, who he was going to hire. Like, what direction are you going? And uh, we got some direction now. But um, first impression, uh, um, it was great, man. I'm excited for him. Uh, what, what about uh, talking to AD yesterday? Like, like his energy I said to Adam in one of our group chats we got like it was impressive like how like how comfortable he is like, like how he, he knows how he wants to get his message across to, to you guys and the journalists and everything else like, it's, it's probably going to translate to the locker room isn't it as well like, did you get that from him? Yeah for sure He he's refreshing in a different way because obviously when you deal with Americans and they've they've been around the game forever and you can almost predict what they're going to say because they're all going to give us the cliches right now, at least because it's all brand new. It was refreshing with AD just because he doesn't use the same vocabulary necessarily. Um, his perspective is different on things. 
Um, and he has an energy about him that I feel like is going to be really contagious with these guys. Um, so, no, AD, I, I remember I asked him, I go, why did you pick the defensive side of the ball? And he straight up said violence. And I go, that's what's <laughs> up. I mean, you know, we, we don't we don't condone violence everywhere, but on the football <laughs> field, you got to want to knock a dude's head off, man. And you feel the intensity with him, uh, but it's genuine and it's real. So I think the guys are going to pick on one act quickly and really follow his lead. Yeah. Um, you you would hope that anyone that's going to have to be a leader of men will be able to win a press conference in inverted commas and come across in a good manner. But when yeah. Pete Carroll was fired, there was obviously a real kind of like, whoa. And as much as people were upset, I think that, that there's a safety blanket in what you know, right? There, there's a comfort in reliability. There's a comfort in experiencing what you know is like the house that you live in for, for years and years. There's a comfort to that. Do you think that these guys have done very well to bridge that comfort gap to a new era? Because it almost feels, listen to the radio guys, listen to the press conferences, reading the social media stuff, that these guys have been there for three weeks, but it feels quite a bit longer than that in the way they've put their their views and their mindsets across to the fans. Yeah, I think they've done a good job um, of keeping the things that make the Seahawks have the great reputation throughout the NFL while bringing this new energy as well. You, everyone talks about Pete Carroll and just how um, he doesn't feel like he's 72 years old. He has a whole bunch of energy, which is true. And I think uh, the energy that he brought every day and the culture he established there is essential to the way everything is ran um, with the Seahawks, from the trainers to the, the cooks to the, the GM and everybody in between. So I think Mike McDonald and these guys have done a good job of being aware of that. And saying, okay, there are some things that you don't have to change. Obviously, you have to make this situation yours and make this culture yours. But there are some things, some procedures, some processes, some relationships that you just want to keep the same. And I think they've done a good job of that. But them just being themselves has brought something else to the situation. Stacey and I were talking today. You got your coordinator, excuse me, your D coordinator and head coach who's 36. You got your other D coordinator who's 44. You got um, your offensive coordinator who's 44, 43, something like that. You just hire a receiver coach who's 40 something, but then you sprinkle in Leslie Frazier who's 60, and then Paula Model, the running running back coach, who's 64. And just with the range and demographics and age and um just the newness, uh naturally there's gonna be a new environment, right? For these guys to get used to. Um, and I think the more comfortable they get and the longer that they're here, they'll continue to build off of that. But initially it was don't change things that, that aren't broken. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, but then be yourself. So um, I've been impressed with the way they've been able to navigate that because uh, people were shocked when Pete Carroll got let go. I was one of those. I was on air when it happened. I go, what, you know, what's going on? I thought he, he had at least another year. Um, so they, they're in a, they're in a tricky situation as far as winning the twelves over and, um, and still giving that same hope that Pete Carroll gave you every year. But no, it's been impressive, man. Those guys are comfortable. They're themselves and they understand who they are. Can I ask you about culture uh, on that? Because a a phrase that I love is that if you can get a reputation for yourself as an early riser, you can wake up at noon every single day and no one will pull you up on it. And I I wonder about the culture that, you know, 11 other NFC teams have made the championship game more recently than Seattle. Uh, they've not been in it for 10 years. They've had three playoff wins in the last 10 years. And obviously, there's a, a level of 
personal respect and when you talk about the chefs and how they're treating i presume that's what you mean by culture because well part of it anyway because from a winning standpoint yes they were superb and fantastic but ultimately i don't think it's unfair to say that the last four to five years they've not lived up to the high expectations that they themselves have set and so when i hear culture part of me thinks well what is worth keeping hold of because what -hmm. you're doing right now isn't necessarily the best way it would seem to win on the field so how does that go I mean you've played the game as well so you know how it's supposed to be in the locker room in the training facility at what point does culture blend from how people interact with each other to how do we put the best product out on the field right and I think that's where um, their culture will show up the most is what you see on the field. Um, because people think of the Seattle Seahawks and the first thing you think about is Legion of Boom, Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll, um, and just the run they had for about 10 years. And you're right, the last four to five years haven't been great. So I think you'll see the culture of this staff show up on the playing field. And that's, and that's when it comes to preparation, when it comes to intensity, when it comes to um, execution. Um, but no, that's fair, man. The, the culture, as far as human interaction, as far as communication off the field and in the, uh, the teaching rooms have, um, have been fine, but it's more about taking that culture out into the field and having it translate and, and you communicate what you need out there. Cause that's where it shows up to the public. Right. Um, and you're right. That's why I think Pete Carroll isn't here anymore because for some reason, these young men were no longer buying what he was selling on the field. I think when it comes to the the training room and the classroom or whatnot, it's a bit easier to control that culture because you're in a room, it's face-to-face, it's interactive. It's kind of like, man, when I coach my son uh, and he gets out on the field and I just let him go. I say, go, just go. And my wife is, you need to tell him this and tell him that. I go, the work is done. Like I'm not anything he messes up on is not going to be fixed right now. He's got to learn how to work his way, his way through that. And I think the players stopped using Pete Carroll's um, philosophy and approach on the football field to work through things. And once you lose that, uh, you're done, man. Cause it's hard to get 53, 54 guys on the same page. Um, so that's what I mean. When I say the culture that you keep um, is just treating people with respect, with dignity, and and moving with integrity. Um, that's the part that I feel like these guys are going to keep and enhance. Now, that culture on the field, you got to get back to playing violent. This team was horrible at attack the ball carrier last year. Uh, you got to get back to aligning correctly. There were times where I'd, I'd watch this defense line up, and i say, who has the edge here? No one's filling the alley. That culture was lost, and – that has a lot to do with the way that it's been communicated. So I'm excited to see how that that culture evolves and how it shows back up again. And that's where Mike McDonald, I feel like, is going to shine in his staff. But when I when I talk about it, I just talk about just the way you treat people. I, I have friends who played all across the league. And the stories I hear about being in the workspace, being in that facility every day, um, I always hear horror stories. But I never heard those with the Seattle Seahawks, even when I was with the Hawks years ago. We didn't have that. Um, so I think it's important to create that type of environment that's, uh, that's healthy, but also has accountability. I just heard a story about um, uh, the Patriots. They got a, the series out. I think it was on Netflix, Stacey was telling me about. And how Gronk used to sit in his car 
for about 10, 15 minutes before he would walk into the building because he just didn't want to be there. He didn't like the feeling walking through that door. So as long as you get these guys to want to show up and to want to learn, that's a start. Now you got to get on the field and have them execute. Uh, and do you think they've drafted the characters, the veterans on the team, the DKs and the Tylers and the quarterback, uh, other guys at the quarterback position, which that, that is going to be an easier transition if it was just all like players so entre- entrenched and tied to Peach. I think the player, the personalities and the voices of Guyton Not Locker Room is going to make that transition easier than maybe it could have been. Yeah, it, it can. It can, right? It, you're dependent on these veterans to uh, to kind of lead the charge, right? Because when you have a, a team with veterans like DK and with Gino and with Tyler Lockett, they're your coaches as well. They kind of set the the standard when it comes to um, expectations and, and, and how to work. So I would assume that Mike McDonald and his crew have reached out to these guys and, and kind of gave them some responsibility. Like, look, we need you guys to help us with this transition. If this staff were to come in here and to not identify who the leaders are and not have these different conversations with them, then the chances of them having success automatically go down. This just in life, right? There are levels to everything. Like some pe- some kids get more playing time than others. Why? Simple. They're better. They practice better. They pay attention. They do the details, right? Just like in a, in a football locker room, some guys are going to have conversations with coaches that other guys aren't going to have. Why? Because they're main contributors, because they, they show up, they work hard, uh, they're relied upon the most. So, um, yes, because of Gino, DK, Tyler, uh, Jordan Brooks, we'll see if they sign him. Because of those guys, the way that I, I, I assume that the staff is going to interact with them, they should make the transition easier. And they should be excited, too, man. I mean, this is it's scary for some, at least initially, because you don't know what you're going to get. But um, it should be exciting, too, man, because you get a, you get a brand new start. Yeah, leadership obviously shows itself in a number of different ways and the the people you just mentioned the players are obviously terrific leaders with ball in hand or on the field but and this is a really small sample size times two but I watched those Instagram videos where they put a question up on the board and the players come out to the locker room there's obviously a good camaraderie but they don't appear to be like the proper alpha personalities that are there and again super small sample size but I was in the players car park after the Eagles game this year uh, and something that struck me is that they didn't look to me like a team that would sort of beat you getting off the bus like when I think of the old mm-hmm. teams you're like Red Bryant is like obviously not a normal sized human being and <laughs> you've got Cam Chancellor and even people like Breno Giacomini like who the fuck how the hell are you that big <laughs> but I saw all the players walk past and there was no one outside of a couple that were like Jesus Christ you are an absurd sized human being. Do you think that, and again, this might be a bit harsh, but like there seems to be a level of quiet leadership that permeated last year's team, as opposed to that sort of alpha dog mentality. Do you think that's something that maybe Pete had to put up with such a long time in the glory years that sort of dwindled and he wanted to go away from it. And that might be something they go back to in, in the coming years with a new regime, because there does feel to be a little bit of a vacuum of, proper vocal alpha dog leadership in that locker room right now. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you. Um when you think of that old team, Sherman, uh Earl Thomas, Mason Red Bryant, you had really big personalities and Pete Carroll let those guys be that. I also think that it has something to do with just this generation as well. Right. Um mm-hmm. I'll I'll be 40 in, in a year and a half. And I I look at these younger guys and the way they communicate, 
uh, how they dress, how they talk. And I go, this is just different, you know, mm-hmm. and you, you want these guys to be able to be themselves. And that that Legion of Boom team, they were completely themselves. They were loud. They were aggressive. They're opinionated. Um, I just don't think that's who this team is. And I don't necessarily think that or was. I don't think I, I don't think that Pete Carroll was looking for a certain type of guy. I think that um, it just kind of happened that way. And um, when it comes to just the physically imposing type of guy, I also think you felt that because that team had a different type of confidence too. Yeah, like this right. team ha- had no reason to have the confidence that the Legion of Boom had. <laughs> and, you know, like y'all ain't done nothing. Legion of Boom is iconic, and I also think that. Um, when you miss guys, people get Jamal Adams a hard time, and they should because of just how he's played. But imagine if Jamal Adams was healthy and was balling. You would feel him walk by you just because of his personality, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if DK had 1,300, 1,400 yards. You would feel him because he wears his emotions on his sleeve. Like th- These two 9 and 8 teams were in such a great area. I don't think they realized who they were or who they wanted to be. And as an athlete – if you don't if you don't feel that this team has a direction or that you guys are are checking off boxes on on your to-do list walk around like you're the shit cuz you're not i guarantee you 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 go to detroit and i go look like you look at personnel quarterback they resemble each other so much guarantee you felt those men getting off that bus why leadership cuz of dan campbell and two they were executing at a high level so um, I, I think that it's a, it's a mix of a lot of things. It's always hard to say, well, this is the reason why. I think the point, w- what you pointed out is true. I think that physically they just weren't a really big team. But I also think that performance is going to affect uh, your attitude and your bravado and, and how and how uh, people perceive you. So, uh, yeah, man. But I, I feel like there are guys on this team that when you are playing at a high level, you'll feel that energy and that confidence when they get off the bus. It's yeah. funny because the one that I did feel the most, his aura was Frank Clark, who I don't even think played in the game, but he right. came out with this attitude of like, well, I know who I am. Right. And, I, and it felt like that was missing a little bit in the rest of the team, even though there were there are future, maybe a couple of Hall of Famers in that roster. And I saw almost all of them, but Frank had this like, well, yeah, I've got a ring. I was in the LOB and I'm, I'm the shit. So what are you going to do about yeah. it? <laughs> Frank, LOB, got rings had the most sacks in playoff history. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's got no, to do that. Yeah. Yeah, who's really accomplished anything on this roster it, as a team? Individually, you got some pro bowlers here or there. But as a team, man, when's the last time you saw a game and thought, man, the Seahawks has beat the brakes off those dudes? We just <laughs> – even if – and not even saying, like, you blew them out by 20 points. Just you physically dominated that team. We just haven't seen that in a while. So I think the the play on the field reflects – the attitude when these guys are walking by you and you're around. Yeah. Uh, you, well, we should talk Mike McDonald and the culture and all these coaches I've got to build. Pete's culture. What was it like walking into the Holmgren Hasselback locker room in, back when you did as as a rookie back, back a few years ago? But what, what was, was that a similar, like, kind of, okay, I know who the voices are in this locker room. I know who I can lean on if I need X, Y, and, X, y, and Z. Is that, is that the same, like, culture type with Holmgren and Number eight? Yeah, um, because when I was on the squad in 08, they went to the Super Bowl in 05, and then they had won, like, five straight NFC West championships. You got Matt Hasselback, who been to a Pro Bowl and Super Bowl, Lofa Tatupu, Walter Jones, who was a Hall of Famer. Like, these guys were established greats. You knew that Walter Jones was going to the Hall of Fame. 
You know, my house back is going to be in the ring of honor. Uh, then you sprinkle in Dion Branch, who was a Super Bowl MVP. Like these dudes knew who they were. So you did feel that. But then we got on the field and we lost a lot of games and all that stuff went away. So we're like, all right, well, we're not, we're not very good. But in training camp, walking into that, you for sure felt that. Yeah. I mean, how, qu- how quickly can it turn from, from that feeling of we're, you know, we're here to just, you know, when's, when's January? Yeah. Um, when you watch film, I'd say three or four weeks in and Dion's not making a play he used to make. Walter's not moving the way he used to move. Hasselback's back is fucked up. Uh, <laughs> Julius Jones fumbled the rock. Once you, once you watch your team on film, because in, in training camp, everybody, Super Bowl champions, you know, everyone has their chance and their goals <laughs> and you should approach it that way. But the film don't lie. And you start watching film and you're like, guys, man, we just we just lost to the Rams, man. They're not very good. Uh, we just we just lost to Eli Manning just threw for 400 yards against us. That team isn't very good. So once you get the the physical evidence, then, you know, the bravado starts to, to calm down a little bit. But you still got to find a way to keep some type of edge out there. But, uh, yeah, it, it's all in the film. Once you see the film, you know who your team is. Yeah. Uh, Culver City is where I think I believe you grew up, and then you ended up in Pullman, Washington State. You got you adorned in Cougar regalia, but that must have been talking of culture shocks. That must have been oh. one going from Culver City to <laughs> to Pullman, wasn't it? Yeah, I always tell people I describe Culver City as that you can meet someone from all seven continents just walking down the street. Right? <laughs> so many different types of people. I got to Pullman. I go. I might be the only black dude here right now. <laughs> uh, what and, you know? Uh, if you're not an athlete, uh, then you know. I'd be like, how how'd you get here? If I see a black dude and he want an athlete, I go, how? Tell me your story because there's only about 300 of us out here. Most of us are athletes. Um, <laughs> it was definitely a, a culture shock, but I think um, I think it was good. You know, the reason one reason why I picked Pullman is because um, it was just completely different from what I was used to, and I knew if I didn't. I committed to USC originally. If I didn't go there, um, I wanted to just get away. And, and Wazoo was balling at the time, three ten win seasons, Rose Bowl, Holiday Bowl. Uh, so yeah, definitely a culture shock, um, but uh, probably the best decision I ever made. Yeah. Uh, what What is like? We we kind of have it over here with our soccer teams. We've what one of our like most regular, one of our favorite people is Michael Sean, who's also uh, a, a Coug. But what what is that with like the connection you can have with? a school like Washington State. We see it with Softy over on the rival station with the Huskies. He didn't even go there. But like, yeah. what, 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 what is that? What is, has that, how is that connection built up and like kept so strong for like, like you, you graduated however many years ago now, but it's obviously, as mm-hmm. I said, you're in a Cougar jacket and a Cougar themed Mariners hat. Like, how, how does that, how does Pullman Washington State get you? So, yeah, well, I, I can speak, I can speak for Washington State. I don't know about UW. Um, and I think that even Stacy would tell you that um, the connection, and I love Softy, number lover Softy, but the connection <laughs> that people have with Washington State, it's a lot stronger than what people have with UW. If you're not an athlete, obviously athletes have a different type of connection. You wear the colors, you compete. Uh, but even just the average student in Pullman has a stronger connection than the average student in UW. And I think it's just, location i mean in pullman it literally shows up out of nowhere you're driving down the highway <laughs> then all of a sudden 
there's a small town and a university and that's all we got. I mean, there's no mall. Uh, there's nothing else to do in Pullman, but school party and hang out with, with the people who are there. And, um, and it's a, uh, it's an underdog us against the world type of type of feeling. We know we're not going to get the top recruits. We know that, um, uh, we got to be down there number one in the country for game day to show up. We know we have to exceed expectations and then exceed those expectations to get any type of notoriety. And I think the people in Pullman, the students in Pullman, kind of embrace that. Man, I on my trip, I saw I saw the Wazoo logo painted in an intersection. I'm like, like that? Really? They're painting the logo <laughs> in the intersection? Like this? This is deeper than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Because in, in LA, there's so many things to do. And SC ran LA when I was growing up and you didn't see SC stuff anywhere. It was just when you got on campus. Uh, so I think it's location, man. And it's embracing who Wazoo has been over its duration. It's just a school that overachieves. Like now we'll, we'll have some dark years, man, because you're not going to get the recruits that a lot of schools get. But when we do get a good group, uh, we celebrate them to the fullest. And uh, nobody can hang with us when it comes to to partying, man. So I, I think that helps the show. <laughs> I was just going to ask about recruiting. How I mean, I, I don't know what sort of offers, other offers, or people that you went to speak to, but what hooked you in? You said the intersection, but why end up there before you sort of know what the fervor is all about, as opposed to you know any local schools or warm states for the sake of argument that you might have wanted to right. go to like what, what was the hook that got you there in the first place well, wazoo was uh was plan c for me my mom always said she goes look man like go on your trips fill everything out but wazoo was plan c i've i verbally committed to lsu when nick saban was there um then i went on a trip and i met nick saban and i knew our personalities weren't gonna mix i'm just more laid back Nick Saban's intense, and I was like, it's in the South. I'm from the West. The culture is different. I just didn't like it when I went. Um, and then I committed to USC you know, when Pete Carroll was there, and uh, they asked me to redshirt. And at the time, I was top 10 in the country in my position and my ego. I'm like, I'm not redshirting. Like, I want to play right now. And um, I took trips to Arizona State and UCLA as well. Um, but I always knew Wazoo was my plan C because that was the only trip I went to where I didn't have players talking about other players. Like I'd lead this group and that group's talking about that group. And, you know, it even happened at SC where you have the most success and guys are just going at each other. And I'm such like a low maintenance, just chill type of dude. I go, well, I can come here and play football and keep it business. But if anything happens, I'm going to Wazoo because they just embraced you. I mean, there was no, there was no bickering back and forth between teammates. The coaches were great. Um, the environment was good. And um, me being from LA, um, everywhere you go in LA, at least growing up, I got to say, all right, where am I going? Who am I with? What colors can I wear? What colors can I wear? Um, what area are we going to be in? There's so many things we think about before we go out to make sure everyone is safe um, to where when I went to Pullman, I didn't feel that at all. I go, I can literally just walk down the street and be completely <laughs> fine here. And their football team, and they were winning a bunch of games at the time. So, man, um, you know, the universe had a plan for me. And they said, not LSU, not SC. And uh, when I got the call from Pete and the gang and they wanted me to red shirt, um, I didn't tell them that I was going to make the move. I just hung up, looked at my mom and go, we're going on to plan C. So it, it was a wazoo. Yeah. If the universe had a plan that involved NIL, 
at that time and LSU offered you the most, Ooh. USC the second. <laughs> like, there's no right or wrong well, answers here because it's a it's a wild, wild west now and who knows how they would react. But would that have affected your decision, do you think, in all honesty? Because it must be... Like you look at the like the collective bargaining agreement in the NFL right now, it's a load of guys that are just chasing short term money to the detriment right. of a lot of other people going forward. And you know, the bargaining agreement is, is fucked for a couple of years in actuality because mm-hmm. they chase short term money. And I feel dreadful for kids that are like 16, 17 that have stuff dangled in front of their faces that might be to their long term detriment. But if if you were being recruited in, in an NIL environment, do you reckon that might have changed you at all? Oh, for sure. You gotta, you, you, you gotta go where the money is. You have to, because in my situation, it's like, okay, me being ranked where I was in college, I probably would have made close to a million dollars my, yeah, my, of my first year in college. Mm-hmm. And to me, a million dollars means I pay off my mom's car note, get her in a house. I can start supporting her right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes more of a business rather than passion. And that's why. I'm happy for these athletes because now they're able to control their future and capitalize off their likeness. But I'm also like, man, you're going to miss so much about what college really was for guys like me who just played for the love and the passion of the game. Oh, yeah. You dangle a million dollars in front of me. I'd be down in LSU right now <laughs> if I were if I were a recruit coming out of college. And it's and it's tough, man, because it's um it's made young men and women have to make adult decisions, man. Mm-hmm. When, when they're probably not capable mentally of doing it. And then they become the leaders of their family now at 18, 19, because they're making all this money and everyone has advice. Everyone wants to influence you in, in what you're doing. And you're just not capable of making those decisions, man. As men, we're not fully developed until we're 23, 24 years old. Thank God for my wife. I'd be broke. I would have spent all my money <laughs> at 23, 24, you know? So yeah, it definitely would have influenced me. Um, and that's what makes me concerned for these young people. But there also is going to be a generation that is going to live through this for five to 10 years. And um, hopefully schools and families kind of adapt and, and guide these young men and women in different ways. Because right now, it's just a money grab. It's mm-hmm. just a money grab. And it will be that. But hopefully, um, over time, we uh, we develop better systems and processes and these guys have have guidance. Like imagine Caleb Williams in five years, he'll be able to go to SC and mentor these young guys and say, all right, this is what I did right. This is what I did wrong. And let me help you through this. Do you think you'd have still made the league if you'd had the security of $3 million in the bank to not have to work maybe quite as hard? I'm not saying that you wouldn't have done, but would it mm-hmm. have affected your mindset, do you think? No, that's a great question because I've, I've had that conversation. I go, if I made a million dollars a year in, in college, just playing football, I leave, say I spend a million of it when I'm in college, which would be ridiculous if I did. But say I spend a million dollars of it. It's like, why we, why do we play football? We play for the love as a young age, but you play to be financially secure. And if I am, and I have conversations with my buddies all the time, go, what would you do if you had this money? I go, man, I'd, I'd buy up land. I start businesses. And this is me speaking as a 38-year-old. Who knows what an 18-year-old would do? Um, but I would, I would accomplish so much in such a little time that who knows what my work ethic would look like. You know, when I was in the NFL, Aaron Curry, um, got drafted and he got $50 million guaranteed, $50 million guaranteed. And he practiced like shit. And I'm always looking, I go, what else is he working for? You can work for a Super Bowl, and that, that's fine. And the people who have that drive, the Tom Brady's, the Pat Mahomes, they're different. 
they're they're wired different. It's it's not about money to them. But a lot of guys, once you get that money, it's like, okay, I've made it. I can relax a little bit. So would it affect me for sure? To what degree? Uh, I don't know. I would like to think that I, I'd still work my butt off and I want to get into the league just to to check that box. But um, man, you give me millions of dollars in college and I could start my adult life with a cushion like that. You have to think there's some mental hurdles you'd have to jump over. I mean, there's not many people who can say they were recruited by Nick Saban and Pete Carroll and said no to both of them. <laughs> Whatever happened to those guys? I don't, yeah, I don't I mean, feel like they made... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. I kind of... <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, saw, I saw Nick Saban hit a golf shot on a par three uh, last, uh, last week. Um, uh, <laughs> looking, looking through your Washington State career, uh, do, do all your records for punt returns and yards, and all, do they still stand? Yeah, the re- the receiving record's gone. I mean, <laughs> Mike Leach came through and we got <laughs> receptions and I got. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the punt ones, and that's what I tell my kids and my wife, I go, ain't nobody touching that one. I mean, because the game's different. People, yeah. don't, people don't have the same pride in the return game that they used to have. Like, you used to put your superstars back there to return kicks. Now it's just, all right, let's just get possession. Put put the, the slow kid with good hands back there just so he can catch it. And let's get the offense out there, but I don't, I don't, I don't see nobody touching those, man. I don't see it. <laughs> it did strike me in the Super Bowl, like we're it we're was... quite friendly with Nick Ballore, who's been on with us a couple of times, and obviously he's made his career out of special teams. And the kickoffs in the Super Bowl were just so boring because every single one was a touchback, yeah. and it just felt like all this build up for such an exciting play. Obviously, safety has to be paramount, but it just feels like they've really taken something out of the game. If you score on a return, your chances of winning the game are like 70% or something like that. Um, I remember Devin Hester taking the opening kickoff to the house when he was with the Bears. I remember Ted Ginn, Ohio State, taking the opening kickoff in the national championship. And those are momentum shifters. It changes the game in a snap just like that. So it's unfortunate that they're taking it away. I understand the safety aspect of it. I was hoping that the NFL would uh, would adopt what the XFL did when they line them up ten yards apart, and then you have the returner, um, because it it um it, it's taken away a part of the game uh, that can apply pressure, and that's what I love about sports is that it applies pressure, and you see who can handle that and who can handle it, and then they're getting rid of it, and you don't see. We used to see Deshaun Jackson returning kicks like superstars. I was so happy to see Debo Samuel return kicks. I go, let's get back to the old school, man. Put your <laughs> best athlete back there and, and let's go get it. But yeah, you're right. If they're not, if 90% of the kickoffs are touchbacks, just eliminate the damn kickoff, line it up on the 25 and say, let's go. Yeah. I mean, Devin Hester's in the Hall of Fame now and Ted Ginn was a top 10 draft pick. Right. That, yeah, that, that like that, that changed. Yeah, it's it is. Richard Sherman returned kicks for a little bit. You know, like <laughs> dudes were back there, man. Yeah, <laughs> um, we, we spoke to a few uh, former Seahawks, and they all they all kind of like stay in the area. You obviously, LA, Pullman, Seattle. What what is it about Seattle that made you like stick around in in Washington and in the area? And obviously, now you, your job is keeping you there. But what what was it for the initial once you? Once the NFL, NFL uh, playing, uh, playing career came to them, what was it that kept you in the area? Um, I, well, I went to the CFL for like half a season up in BC. Um, so football is, for some reason, has kept me here. And then my wife is actually from here. She was born here. Uh, she grew up in Inglewood, which is like five minutes away from where I grew up. 
So we always joke, like we might've passed each other as kids <laughs> and had no idea. Um, uh, but um, after, obviously after college, you go to the Seahawks and then BC, my wife is from here. And really what I, I tell my sons too, I go, man, it's about like college. If you don't, if, you, if you're not an athlete, you don't get drafted or you don't discover a cure for cancer or something like that. Like college is just, networking and making connections right all the the kids you're going to school with there's somebody who's going to be a president of a business there's going to be a cfo a ceo there there are going to be there's so many different kids with potential that college is about networking you get your degree you do what you got to do but you build that network and when i was done playing i'm talking to my wife i go there's no reason for me to go back to la everything everything i am is is here now i go back to la I'm just an, another guy. I have no connections, right? I don't have, I won't have the same opportunities here. So it was just a business decision. I, I felt that I could maximize my resources if I just hung around for a little bit. And uh, that's exactly what happened, man. I, I The place I am today is all because of legit, because I played for the Hawks and I coached high school football in this state. Like, mm-hmm. If I didn't do that in this state, um, maybe I do move back to LA and roll the dice out there. But, and then my wife is from here, you know, saying happy wife, happy life. She wouldn't be around her family. <laughs> my in-laws are literally four blocks away from us. Um, we knew, we knew we wanted two or three kids. She needed help. So um, other than the family aspect, it was just, okay, where are all of my resources or the bulk of my resources? And they were here in the state. Is that what you think has kept so many like players that have been, you know, Doug Baldwin and the Shermans, like obviously in addition to being comfortable here, I suppose when you have a ring, when you do become a, a city legend, it does open doors. And is that is that what's kept people here as much as anything else? Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, Cliff is from Florida, right? Mm. Cliff won a Super Bowl. He'll go to Florida. Some people might know who he is, but he didn't play for that team out there. He ain't Dan Marino, you know, like mm-hmm. it's and Cliff is still making money out here. Cliff is on commercials and stuff, you know? So, <laughs> and, and, and in the Northwest, man, the people do a great job of just supporting local talent. There's only about 4 million people in this state. Um, most of them are on the West. So it's a, it's the Seattle is a big city, but it's, it's a real intimate city. You know, uh, where I'm from in LA, there's 13 million people, 14 million people. And everyone just kind of does their own thing. There's no real connection at times. And it could be like that here too, but, if you do anything to um, to put a memory in a young person's or old person's mind out here, especially when it comes to football, basketball, soccer, baseball, whatever, uh, they're going to support you, man. So I think um, that's just the culture of the Northwest is that they take care of theirs, even if you're a transplant like me. People say I'm a transplant, but I've been in the state 20 years now. I was in L.A. for 18, so I'm like, I'm pretty much <laughs> I'm, I'm Washingtonian at this point. But uh, they take care. If, if you have success, and even if you don't have the major success, because at Wazoo, we only won six games my best year. I was in the NFL. We only won four games. I, I didn't do – I wasn't a starter. I got five catches in the league. But um, I did something that meant something to some people. And because of that, you can kind of get things going and the snowball effects happen and, and just take advantage of stuff. Uh, there's been a few clips from uh, Nate Tice talking to, uh, I think the last one was with Puka Nakua, talking through like plays from in season. Do you remember your touchdown play and like what that looked like? Did you, can you still like picture catching the ball oh, from Hasselbeck? Oh, do I? 
<laughs> oh man oh, hang on michael the floor is yours for 10 to 15 minutes here. we want granular want, when was the play put in in training camp in practice i want to know everything i, I want to live it through your eyes the floor's yours all right well as you know only one touchdown uh it's one more than us combined so don't worry about it <laughs> Um, I remember it was um, – everyone was getting hurt that year. Nate Burleson went down the very first game in Buffalo with an ACO. Deion Branch kept uh, pulling his hammy. And then Bobby Ingram was towards – he was like year 13 or 14. Uh, he kept getting banged up. And I remember I was on the practice squad, and I actually went back to Pullman uh, with my, my then-fiancé, now wife, and we're watching uh, the Seahawks game, and I see – Nate go down. I look at my wife. I go, oh, shit, I might play next week. <laughs> she goes, really? So where are you on the depth chart? I'm like, don't worry about that. I might play next week. <laughs> um, so we, I go back, and on Monday, I see all these receivers coming in. They're, they're trying not to play me. You know, I'm an undrafted guy. <laughs> I see all these, these older guys coming in. I see Sammy Parker and a bunch of other receivers, and um, they're making can me stay after practice every day to compete with these guys. I catch punts, run the routes. And I remember on like a, on a Thursday, all those guys were sent home. And I go, all right, cool. I got to be like the fourth receiver on the dev chart now. And um, we were doing our red zone, our red zone session at practice. And uh, they put me in with the first group, the, the E group. They call the slot receiver E back then. And uh, we run this play. They put me in motion to the right. Boom, I run a shallow. There's a post behind me, and then there's a dig um, on the far side. And, uh, and and we're hitting it. We're hitting it. We're hitting it. And every time they blitz off the edge one time, I catch the football. Uh, they sit a backer there. I weave through. I find it. They man me up. I get open. They threw every situation at me just to kind of see how I was going to handle it. And, uh, and every time I execute it. Um, so I knew I go, man, if we get inside the 10, it was inside the 10. We get inside the 10. I know they're going to call this. If they call out my personnel, I know they're going to call this play. I even told my wife that. And uh, we're playing the Rams and we get inside the 10. And I'm I'm just staring at my receiver coach. I go, I know he's going to put me in right now. Like, come on, man. Come on. And they, they call the group EE. And I run out there. My boom. I look at Matt Hasselback. I go, Call the fucking play. I know you're going to call the play. And I forget what it was. It was something emotion shallow. And uh, he called the play. I'm like, all right, cool. Don't don't fall start. Don't move towards the line of scrimmage in your motion. Square up before the snap. I'm going through my checklist. I'm like, all right, let's get her done. And uh, he motions me over. I square up. I'm wide open. I swear to God, Matt looks at me and goes, nah. <laughs> and he looks to the other, <laughs> other two receivers. like He almost like he didn't trust me. I go, Matt, we were running this. All week, man, I got you. And he thinks about it. He pumps. He goes the other direction. And now I'm so far across the field, I have to adjust my route. I'm slowing down a little bit. And he waits to the last minute and puts it in between a linebacker and a safety. And he keeps it low for me. If he would have kept it high, I would have got knocked out. But he keeps it low. Boom, I score. And then um, there's a, my buddy Trent Shelton, who was on the practice squad with me. We were like the practice squad champions at the time. We did this celebration every time. We made a play in practice, so I did it. I didn't even want to even think about it. I just did it, and uh, I run to the sideline, and Julius Jones, it's like, bump, you forgot the ball. He brings the ball to me. I would have left the ball out there. I wasn't even thinking about the football. <laughs> like, he brings the ball to me, and uh, I'll never forget uh, Holmgren. 
walks over to me and the home grenades say nothing to me. He barely anything to me. I'm just undrafted guy. And he sits down and he goes, welcome to the NFL. And I go, man, that's, that's pretty cool. So uh, that was a, that was a good moment, man. It's only one I got. My mama got the ball, but uh, it was a good moment. That's really cool. Uh, so is, is, is there a moment like a moment of Zen pre-snap where you said like, don't fall start, don't fall start. Was there like a moment where you think like, this is what I've worked for us six seven like since high school for this is that kind of time to shine kind of thing was there like a moment of zen pre-snap um honestly man it's it's um i always thought that i was the best player on the field whenever i played I, I didn't care i'm like i'm better than all these dudes just give me a shot so when it happened there wasn't even no zen. It was more like just throw me the fucking ball. Like I'm about to clip these dudes. You know what I mean? Like, let's go. I've been I'm ready for this. It's about damn time you guys got me on the field. Uh I think the Zen part came after the touchdown when the crowd reappears. Cause it's real. You hear athletes talk about things going black and it's just you and it slows down and it's quiet. It's really like that. Um, so after I caught the ball. I do my little dance and I run into the sideline. I'm just looking around. I go, yep, this is, this is what I've worked for my whole life. So it's a great feeling, man. I can't imagine being a guy who does that like a hundred times in his career. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I catch a hundred touchdowns. It, it probably gets old for them after a while before a guy like me, man, it was pretty cool. But you, you, so you were obviously probably the best player in your high school team. You set records in college. You made it to the league. You scored one touchdown, which, as far as I'm concerned, if you can score one, given the opportunity, you could probably score 50. So this is going to sound like almost like a criticism of you. It's, obviously, it's not. But why mm. weren't you able to, you know, what, what separates a one year guy from someone that can play for 10 years? Like, and do you know that at the time? And mm. are you looking around thinking, yeah, that guy's better than me in, in, in your, you know, in your heart of hearts, or is it something that you visit at right. the end of your career and thought, yeah, I, that's what, that was the, where the difference was. And I don't mean that, no, in the moment, I don't I, mean that with any disrespect, no, no, I'm just no, trying to get an no. idea of, of the difference. Cause you're obviously in the 99.999 percentile of people, but what I'll, I want to know what takes that extra decimal point. Yeah. No, it's no disrespect at all. That's just reality, man. Shoot. Maybe. When I just left the league, if you ask me that question, I'll be mad. But at what, freaking 14 years later, you just <laughs> enough time to reflect. Um, one, I think that the, the era I played football in, if you were a guy my size, 5'11", 190, if you didn't run a 4'3", you just had to be perfect. And I wasn't, I wasn't a fast guy like that. I was more quick. Um, in today's game, a guy like me will thrive. I see guys getting drafted running four fives, four sixes. And I go, I ran a four four and I wasn't the fastest guy. I think the era had something to do with uh with uh with why I didn't go. And I also think that I got hurt at the wrong time. Um going into training camp my second year, I broke a bone in my foot, my fifth metatorsal. Um I have a screw in my foot to this day. And as soon as I got hurt because I was an undrafted free agent, they're just bringing guys in, bringing guys in. Then I get healthy. Um, right before the season starts, and I'm battling just for for playing time, uh, and they end up cutting me. And there were guys who were just performing. I didn't believe in my foot mentally. I was just in a bad place. My foot was hurting me, but I knew I had to go out there and play because I didn't want to give up my spot. And uh, I didn't have confidence to put my left foot in the ground and drive off of it the way that I used to because it hurt. Like it genuinely hurt. I I had them take me to the hospital like two or three times just to show me the X-ray. So mentally, I'm like, my foot is fine. Why does it hurt so much? So once 
once I lost the belief in my foot, it changed my game because that was what I did. I was the shifty sit down, move you quick guy. I didn't have that in my game anymore. And that's, that's when I started to lose the edge that I played with because I, I knew physically I couldn't do it, but I had to go out there and put myself in that, in that position. Um, but then there were guys, when I look back at it, like Nate Burleson, way better than I was, like not touching Nate Burleson. Um, I look at Dion Branch, way better than I was, not touching Dion Branch. Um, there were things that they could do with their bodies that I couldn't do with my body. And then once I realize I'm immortal and I got that screw in my foot and I can't push off of it, now I'm aware of it. I go, fuck, I can't, I can't do these things. Now I'm playing cautious and timid. So I, I think um, just the player I was back then was in the wrong era. Nowadays, I think I'd be fine. Um, and then just the timing of me getting hurt and forcing myself to get back out there because I knew I didn't have time to get healthy. If I were first, second, third round guy, I knew it would have a bit more time to be patient with me. But just because of who I was on that roster, I had to get myself out there and play. So then I go to Canada to play. These are bad. I call my wife. I go, all right, man, I'm just going to finish the season and I'm done. Like my foot hurts. Um, we'll just, we'll just, we'll start our own business. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, obviously, with a lot with Ryan Grubbs coming in as Ryan Grubb, uh, singular, not plural, uh, coming in as OC about motions and stuff. You said you play for the BC Lions. Like their pre start motions at wide receiver are wild. It's like a six yard running head start. Was that, was that tough to like kind of like, oh yeah, I have to like move before the ball does kind of thing? Was that a tough thing to kind of like compute when you, when you got to BC? Man, that's cheating. <laughs> never, never get covered. I get to run forward. And you, I mean, and that was it was an adjustment, but a, but a good one. I go, I gotta, I got a head start now. You know, I can move a little bit. Um, I think the biggest adjustment in, in Canada was probably the the twelve guys on the field because mm-hmm. I'm so used to lining up and diagnosing stuff, and and you could feel that twelve guy. And then the the width of the field and the length of the field, the end zones are 20 yards. And the field is essentially 110 yards. And then the width, it's about 5 to 10 yards wider than in the NFL. So there's more people, there's more space. Goalposts are in the front. So, like, all my senses are being, are being challenged. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so used to filling the game in a different way. Uh, that was challenging. Running towards the line of scrimmage was cake. It, was, it made the game that much easier. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's weird watching. I I lived in Canada for six months. I went to uh, they were called the Eskimos there. I think they've had to change their name since. But yeah, yeah, it's it, it's just a weird like like what what are they doing? Where are they going? Like it's it's, <laughs> it's very it's very uh, Adam in France. No, I'm good. I mean, look, obviously you don't just cover football. You cover baseball and and the way the whole city's going. As a you know, you say you've been in Washington longer than you have in in LA. So it's probably your state. It's your city, but what do you get as the general vibe of sort of the the Seattle sports fan? Because we, we watch things from afar. We are mm-hmm. soccer fans primarily. And then, you know, the Seahawks kind of a passion project for us. And we, we love them as sort of like our second team. But as soccer fans, we are lunatics, incredibly negative, incredibly aggressive. <laughs> and like when it comes to the Seahawks, like I'll be honest, like we haven't really enjoyed the last five or six years because for us, mm-hmm. we don't, apart from the games that we go to once a year, we watch the games at, 6 p.m., 9 p.m., or 1.35 a.m., go to bed whenever that is, probably pissed off because they've not won, unfortunately, (laughs) and it's annoying. But in general, I I feel like the team winning sort of 10 games a year, the Mariners kind of winning just about enough the last year. Like, everyone in Seattle has kind of seemed 
moderately okay with what's been happening. And I wonder if it feels like there's enough of an edge there for it to be like a championship city, like the East Coast teams. Like, What do you get the sense of the vibe of a sporting city versus other kind of big cities that that have these sports teams that maybe demand victory a bit more than Seattle does? Yeah. Um, I saw, I grew up a Dodger fan, a Laker fan. <laughs> um, I won't tell you the football team I grew up cheering for because people don't like those guys. Uh, but when in LA, you expect to win, but you also know that your franchises are going to spend the money to make sure you got a chance to win. I never experienced uh, franchises or a franchise uh, perceived as not doing enough to wanting to win and running this thing more or less rather than a competition. So the most disgruntled fans in the country are Mariners fans. They are like, look, you're spinning like you're a, 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 the 20th market in the country. You're the 12th. Go out there and get it. Mariners fans are nuts, but I also feel like they have a reason for that. It's been 20 something years. You make it to the playoffs one time. Um, they, uh, they're demanding a lot. I think you got people who are in their fifties now who didn't experience uh, a playoff last time they were in their early thirties or, or late twenties. And now you got people who are in their twenties who don't even remember really your team having that type of success. So when you talk about the Mariners, Man, these fans—they're angry and they—they they want results right now. They—they <laughs> like they, they don't play, and I'm not mad at them because the Mariners don't typically spin like they want to win. Now, when you talk football, I think the those fans are getting to that spot, that place now because you're spoiled early in 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. You have a lot of success, and now it becomes an expectation. Um, and you have good years where Russell throws for a lot of yards. You win 10, 11, 12 games, but you get to the playoffs, you lose in the first round. So I think that now when you talk the the Storm, the women's basketball team, those fans are fine. Sounders are probably the most successful team we have in, in the Northwest, um, and then the Kraken, who are who are so young. But the the core Seahawks and Mariners fans, I think, are at a, at a tipping point right now. I think they're at a point where they're ready – to blow shit up if you don't start <laughs> seeing results because they for 10 years at least at least Seahawks fans they become accustomed to a certain thing and then the Mariners fans become accustomed to just losing and not really having expectations to start the season so I think this is a a dangerous place the sports world is right now in the Northwest because these fans are tired of losing Sounders fans are fine they're gonna have success uh the Sounders are good but those Mariners and Seahawks fans are ready to blow some stuff up. It's got to be quite a fun media environment to work in, though, given that a lot of what you do will rely on interactions and feeding off the like the general atmosphere of the fan base in the city. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, they don't agree with me a lot because I'm a bit more patient than them. Um, because uh, obviously, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't grow up here, and um, I see it from a player's perspective. Um, I see it from a business perspective. I have my business, so I understand margins and all that stuff. Um. But it is fun. They keep us on our toes, man. I get cursed out every day on our show on the text lines. People tell me how, how I'm biased and this, that, and the third. But you know, I accept all type of interaction, man, because that means that people are listening and they're emotionally invested in their teams, and they should be. Yeah. Uh, but there's a question I've asked a few people who like cover the team and obviously live in Seattle. Obviously, when the quarterback was traded a couple of years ago, it's not, there's kind of like no standout Seattle sports style. Obviously, Julio. Rodriguez somewhat stepped into that breach. 
you grew up in LA with Kobe, Shaq, like the Dodgers have got Kershaw and all the rest of it. Now, like, who who is the Seattle like sport? Is it Julio or it's like is is DK chasing down like he's Buda Baker? Nah, it, <laughs> it's it's Julio for sure. It's yeah. Julio. I mean, he he's getting paid the most money. Uh, potential to make what three hundred four hundred thousand dollars if he hits all his, his incentives. Um, he's the most marketable. He's, he's a handsome young man. He, he's tall, and he has that superstar aura. I take my kids to at least three, four games a year, and uh, one game we sat behind the the Mariners dugout, and I'm telling my kids, and I go, "Hey, man, watch his approach." watches every move as soon as he steps out that dugout. You're going to feel the superstar in this guy. And my kids, well, whatever, Dad. And then as soon as he steps out, they feel his presence, and they're locked in. Mm -hmm. And he goes up there. I think he gets on base. And I go, did y'all feel that? They go, yeah, Dad, that's different. I go, yeah, that's that's on some Kobe stuff. Like, my middle son's name is Kobe, right? <laughs> so uh, I go, I go, dude, that's on some some Kobe stuff, man. And he has a, a great personality, and um, he already have, has done something that this fan base hadn't seen in a long time, which is lead a team to the playoffs. So it is by far no question about it. This is Julio's town for sure. Yeah. It's, it's quite cool how like sliding doors that was with the quarterback leaving for Denver and Julio mm -hmm. popping off as a rookie and all the rest of it. As you said, um, a playoff run as well. I, I went to see a Dodgers game a couple of years ago in Arizona and Kershaw was just sat like with his he wasn't pitching he was just there in his uniform it's just like oh shit that's Clayton Kershaw the one I've watched at like 3am yeah. kind of thing so yeah <laughs> it's definitely definitely a real thing um you said when you talked about soccer to AD that are you a Chelsea fan is that right is that right you yeah like, I mean, yeah so I um I went to England when I was what 14 years old went to a Chelsea West Ham game <laughs> saw Hasselbeck score a goal and ever since then I go that's my squad yeah, yeah. Chelsea uh, did you not try and like mimic his uh, cartwheel celebration when you got back to the states? <laughs> <laughs> I did. My my coach was actually English. That's how we ended up going uh, to England, and uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't allow all that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, Chelsea West Ham is a bit of a baptism of fire, isn't it, Adam? You're yeah. I mean, as a a, a fan of a, a non poisoned London club like those two. <laughs> Uh, yes, that is a batsman. I mean, I would yeah, not not roll with either of those two. But uh, yeah, no, good, good luck to you. Good luck to you. I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> and uh, one, uh, one final question. Uh, please tell me that your your Stacey hasn't got you in uh, on the hook for Love Island like she has when she comes on this pod. You have like dodged that bullet, right? What bullet? Excuse me. What you saying? Lo uh, Love Island, the TV show that. Stacey's oh. <laughs> Come on, the you best know, TV show that's ever existed. <laughs> She, I've watched a little bit of it because she's my partner in crime. So I, I got to try to connect with her, <laughs> but she, she's got me on the love is blind deal. Me and my wife. Okay. Um, yeah. But I try to, I try to, I don't have the time though, man. Like Stacey, <laughs> single, no kids, you know, me, I got, I got two kids. I play soccer, one basketball. So when I get home, uh, I just want to go to sleep and not watch <laughs> <laughs> reality TV. Well, I have one son who's 18 months old, and so as soon as he goes to bed, Love Island is mine and my wife's sort of light relief away from the, the parenting <laughs> life. So that kind of works in both, both ways, I think. Yep, yep, I love it. Uh, cool. Uh, Michael, we really do appreciate uh, you jumping on with us. Uh, like, yeah, it's 
yeah, but when, when Stacey commands, like, can you help us get get your co-host on? Because yeah, you got your energy on the show with Stacey. The the bits on the podcast we're able to listen to over here, like, it's yeah. So it's, we really do appreciate your time after after four hours on the radio, spend another hour and a bit talking to us too. Uh, idiots. Uh, where can people catch you on all the socials? Obviously, catch those podcasts of you, uh, Bump and Stacy. Uh, one man, thanks for having me on. I know it took us a while to connect, but I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that we did. Um, on on X slash Twitter, um, <laughs> Michael Bumpus Five, the number five on Instagram, same thing. Michael Bumpus Five, and um, this year I'm going to be producing um, Talking Cougs again. And it's a 16 episode show that I hear. Um, I'm still waiting to see what uh, network is going to do, but I will be calling football games next year, whether it's for the Pac-12 Network or or anywhere else. And, um, and yeah, man, too, bum to Stacy. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really cool. Like calling football games just seems like a terrifying prospect. Like just there's so many details to get right, and yeah, it's just. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. All the usual means and methods for the pod at the Ped Pod on Twitter, uh, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes. But you're listening on that as well. Yeah. Until next time, this has been the Pedestrian. Julius Jones with single setback. Matt Pumphrey's looking to the goal line. He throws it into the end zone. Touchdown Seahawks! It's Michael Bumpus with a diving catch in the end zone. A 10-yard touchdown reception for Bumpus, and the kid out of Washington State has found himself a place on this team.